Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Let's face it, there's a lot we think we know to be true, but really aren't. Like when you're in a lot of pain, beyond taking medication and deep breathing and sometimes swearing, that discomfort isn't really alterable. Nope. All right, but everybody knows that that little brown spider you see crawling up your arm, even here in Connecticut, that's probably a brown recluse and it is very dangerous. Well, actually, you're wrong. Okay, well, everybody knows that testosterone is the male hormone and the more you have of it, the more aggressive you'll be. That is so wrong. That is absolutely not the way it works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right. One thing you can know for sure is that all of these myths and misunderstandings will be corrected on Audacious right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The older I get, the more excited I am to be corrected when I'm wrong. Sure, it may sting for a second, because hearing someone say, actually, can be kind of annoying. And if I'm wrong about something, then that means that, contrary to my sparkling self-image, I don't know it all. But as you know, a lifetime of listening to public radio has a tendency to remind you that there's always stuff to learn and to unlearn. And it feels good to unlearn. The three segments you're going to hear today are going to once and for all change the way you may have been seeing a few things. And they were all inspired by past episodes of Audacious. One episode featured people who'd been attacked by wild animals, including a brown recluse. So you'll hear from the expert on brown recluse spiders on the myths of where they live and how dangerous they really are. Another episode was about masculinity, so you'll hear from the authors of a book about how totally misguided testosterone studies have been throughout history, and how much testosterone does and does not have to do with aggression. But first, pain. The myth? Beyond medication and lots of swearing, pain is going to do what pain wants to do. Pain's going to pain. A couple months ago, I woke up with sudden, totally unexplainable, severe upper back pain. I hadn't done anything, to my knowledge, to bring it on, and a couple hours after waking up, the only way I could find any relief at all was to lie on my back on the floor and cry. When I got to a physical therapist later that day, the pain was so bad I could barely get the words out. As we worked together, we spent a lot of time talking about pain, about how mysterious it is and and how frustrating it is to not understand it but also how amazing our bodies are and and how telling it is that we all react differently to similar conditions. I kept asking him for a diagnosis, a reason why I was feeling this pain, and he couldn't give it to me. It just happens, he said about back pain, and for most people that pain just resolves. After a few visits with him, he proved to be right, but he didn't let me leave my last appointment till he told me about the research of Tasha Stanton. She's an associate professor leading the osteoarthritis research theme within Impact in Health at the University of South Australia in Adelaide. 
Her research aims to understand how we experience pain and how pain can become chronic. And she's particularly interested in how manipulating our sense of reality manipulates our perceptions of pain. That's what I wanted to know most about because that sounds awesome. I asked her to set up our conversation with an example she shows in some of her talks of two x-rays of knees. Yeah, so I think it's it's a really interesting thing to come across if you if anyone has ever worked as a clinician and we often get a sense or actually if they've ever had an x-ray but we get a sense that that what we see on these scans is telling us why we have pain and why things hurt. And the challenge with this is that that's not always the case. So there's pictures of of a knee x-ray and so it's two different people the person has quite a bit of osteoarthritic change in the knee. So you lose joint space, you see little bone growths, different things like that. But the thing that blows and blew me away while I was was working as a physio is that one of those people has pain and the other doesn't. And if you just looked at those x-rays, there's no way that you could pick that out. So there's been newer studies, for example, in, in people without any pain at all. And if we put them into a scanner, an MRI scanner, 40% of people over the age of 40 will have some type of osteoarthritic changes on that scan, despite the fact that they have no pain whatsoever. So we see this disconnect between what we see on imaging findings and what people feel, that experience of pain. Which begins to sort of crack open these theories of like, what is happening here? Yeah, that's right. And I think it tells us about the complexity of pain, because we have this, I guess, assumption that what we feel, things like pain, it's just a readout of the information that's coming from, let's say, our sore knee. It's just a readout of that sensory input. But what we understand now is that really isn't the case at all. Instead, it's this complex process where information from your body is, you know, put together and integrated with past experiences that you have, but also your expectations, your fears, your beliefs, other things that's going on in the world at that time. And inevitably, it's a determination of the balance of safety and danger. Am I under threat? And if there is sufficient evidence that you are under threat, then you need to be protected. And pain is that protective output that occurs that stops us from, you know, being silly and, you know, doing things that we shouldn't. But the sensory input that's coming from that sore body part, that's only one, one of the danger message, one of the possible things that is considered when our system is determining whether or not we need to be protected. And we look for that evidence to confirm how we feel, right? And (laughs) I'd love for you to tell the story briefly, if you would, about the builder who saw that his boot was skewered by a nail. Yeah, so that is a, it's a beautiful case study. It's um, of a builder who managed to skewer his foot with a nail. This fellow, of course, was, you know, <laughs> not in, not feeling too great, had to be taken to the emergency department. And every touch, any jiggle of the foot was enormously painful. And so they had to, you know, give him very strong pain medications and sedatives. And at some point, they were finally able to, you know, carefully remove his boot. And it was at that point that it was to everyone's shock that that nail had not even injured him at all. It had gone in between his two toes. But it's a beautiful illustration of when you have believable and credible evidence, in this case from vision, seeing that nail going through your foot, 
that is exactly what your brain should do. You should be um, protecting yourself. And it's just this really stark case study that shows that things are so much more complex than we realize. So there are a bunch of really cool experiments that augment our sense of reality to see what it does and how we how we report our experiences of pain. But as a public radio show, I mean, as a radio show, we have to start with your study on the use of sound while working with people who report having stiffness in their backs. Yeah. So this is the idea that we don't just take, again, information from the body part itself. We include all the information around us to determine our perceptions or what we feel. So this was, yeah, people who had back pain and they reported back um, stiffness. And I was really interested in seeing what we could do with sound information, particularly because if you think about a stiff joint, it makes noise, it cracks, it grinds, it does different things. So we have this ecological validity to using sound with this. But so what we did is we had people who had this sore back and stiff back lie on their on their stomach and we applied a pressure to their back. And this was a really specialized machine that measured stiffness of the back. And so what we did is while this machine was applying pressure to their back, we paired a sound of an incredibly creaky door to that pressure so that what their brain is getting is this evidence that as this is pressing, this is the sound that's resulting from this. And what we found was, is when we provided this, you know, incredibly creaky sound, people's backs felt more stiff. They reported that it felt more stiff. And if we provided a sound that was quite um, promoting almost like a nice movement, like whoosh, whoosh, then they felt less stiff. And so it shows that it's not just, you know, sound itself, just the fact that it's distracting or something like that, but actually the sound matters and changes that experience of stiffness at the back. So just like seeing the nail through the boot, it's so much about the story we tell ourselves about our pain. Absolutely. And we have actually quite a few of these sort of innate sensory processes in our, our body and our brain that we don't, we're not even aware of. Like so much of the information is combined, modulated and integrated before it ever comes into our conscious awareness and we experience something. So some of these things are taking advantage of the fact that these systems exist. Let's talk about more manipulation of reality to see how that affects how people sense pain. Tell me about Daniel Harvey's study using virtual reality with patients who report having neck pain. What did he do? Yeah, so Dan did a uh, really innovative, cool study. He was um, looking at people who have something called mechanical neck pain. It's a term that we often use um, to describe people that at a certain rotation, head rotation, their neck pain tends to quite reliably come on. And so what he did is he, he got people to um, put on virtual reality goggles and then he had them rotate their head and he wanted them to stop moving as soon as their neck pain came on. But what he did is he manipulated what they saw. So he gave them accurate vision sometimes so that when they turned their head, how much their eyes are telling them they're turning was accurate. But then sometimes he messed with the vision. And what was really cool is when what you see with your eyes told you that you have moved your head further than you actually have, pain comes on sooner. So it manipulates when that pain comes on. And if your eyes tell you that you have not moved that far, you actually can move further than normal 
before pain comes on. So that literal point at which pain comes on is manipulated by what you see. And it tells us that it's actually, it's not about, you know, pinching nerves or, or things like that in the neck. It's about the fact that you've created information in your head of where parts of movement are dangerous. And when you have information that you're in that part of the movement that's dangerous, pain occurs. So it's an intriguing look into how sensory information around us can actually very, very much change our pain experience, even though it's just vision. Which brings me to the work you and Roger Newport did, manipulating real-time video to create illusions for osteoarthritis patients. What'd you do? Yeah, Roger and I collaborate quite a lot in the studies that we do working with this machine This called the Mirage. It's cool because you see video of your own body, but then it changes in front of your eyes. So it's really quite compelling. So we've recently um, done some work in people with painful knee osteoarthritis. And basically, they look at their own knee, and then in front of their eyes, it begins to change. So we used this something called a stretch illusion, which made their knee almost look big and long. And while we were making their knee look like it's growing, we also pull on the calf muscle towards the foot. So they're getting both information from vision and touch that their knee is changing in size. And so what we found in our study is that doing that illusion was analgesic. It made their knee hurt less. And we did lots of other control conditions. So, and we randomized the order. We didn't tell them what the real illusion was, but it was only in that real illusion that they had pain relief. And if we repeated that a bunch of different times, then the effect was larger on pain relief. And we had one person, this was really interesting. This is a case study that we actually just published that this fellow, when we were doing these illusions, actually his knee swelling changed. So when we did certain illusions, his knee swole up more. And so we measured that with a tape measure around his leg. Then when we made his whole leg look really small, actually his knee swelling went down. And that's incredible to me because that's not only saying that what we see influences our inherent experience of pain, but it's changing physiological regulation of that body part. It's changing swelling. That's incredible and shows that our range of protection actually goes beyond just pain. It can be swelling. It can be, you know, muscle spasms or cramps. It can be having a sore tummy. All those things are, are often protective responses in our body. Part of understanding pain is also understanding the importance of explaining what's going on to the patient, which it feels frustrating, right? Like how should you telling me about what's going on have any effect on, on the kind of pain I'm feeling. So talk about why that makes a difference, explaining it to the patient, what you know. People listening, may it be that someone listening to this episode may feel less pain just by being educated about it? Yeah. When there's an understanding that if I feel pain, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm hurting things or damaging things more. What that allows us to do is to understand deep in our, in our bellies that we can do things and we can be a bit sore, but we're actually safe. Because if we think about pain as a, as a safety, it's a safety buffer. And we all have a certain safety buffer. Even if you think about you know pressing into your arm and, and, and stopping when you first feel pain, you haven't damaged anything, but you feel pain. You've just pushed into the safety buffer. And when we have pain that lasts a little bit longer, what we start to see is that safety buffer gets bigger. But understanding that 
and understanding that actually, if I slowly press into that safety buffer and I feel a little bit of pain when I'm doing it, that's what helps our system relearn and normalize and move that safety buffer back to normal. But I think that overall, that knowledge that you can feel a little bit sore when you're doing things, but you are nowhere near the tissue capacity. You are nowhere near damaging or hurting yourself further. And that can just be freeing. And that removes worry, that removes stress related to movement. And all of those things can enhance and and, and heighten the pain experience. You're literally stronger than you think. That's right. And And I think understanding that can be really empowering because it also means that if you know that there's many different things that can contribute to your need to protect your body, there's actually a lot of different things you can target with treatment. Well, Dr. Tasha Stanton, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. When we get back. The idea that testosterone is a predictor of a variety of traits that somebody might have is attached to this misconception of testosterone as a stable trait. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're deflating myths that have overstayed their welcome in our collective psyche. One of them, testosterone increases aggression. The day before my interview with the authors of Testosterone, an unauthorized biography, my wife and I were walking our new dog. He's a little over a year old, and we've made a lot of progress training him, but there's definitely room for improvement in a few areas. So when we saw a man on our walk with a perfectly still German shepherd by his side, I asked him, hey, how are you training your dog? He looked so well behaved. And then the guy says, oh, this one is driving me crazy. Sometimes he does what I train him to do, but sometimes he's off the hook. He's not listening. He's pulling the leash and being aggressive. You know, he's in the testosterone phase of life. First of all, that was weird because I was hours away from this interview about testosterone. But second of all, he perfectly demonstrated what the authors call tea talk the folklore of testosterone, the stories we so confidently tell about this hormone that turns out aren't nearly as true or as simple as we'd like. Rebecca Jordan Young is a sociomedical scientist and professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Barnard College, and Katrina Carcasis is a cultural anthropologist and visiting professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Emory University. Together, they're the authors of Testosterone, an unauthorized biography. I asked them to start at the title of their book, Why Unauthorized? You'll hear first from Rebecca Jordan Young. There's a very well-rehearsed life story about this hormone, this molecule, and that well-rehearsed story has actually gotten in the way of a more accurate and nuanced and complicated and, frankly, fun and interesting story that we try to tell in the book. You say in the book that people understand that testosterone equals the male sex hormone. Why is that wrong? I don't know that we can blame people for this because in part, this mischaracterization comes from science and medicine itself and also from popular culture. And so there's a way in which piggybacking on what Beck said, if we think about this hundred year history that keeps getting told and told and told again about testosterone that never updates, 
Part of the reason is precisely because testosterone has been characterized as a male sex hormone with the idea that it's only present in men and not in women, or that it's more active in men versus women, or that it only in a very narrow sense that somehow it is that which makes masculinity, whether that's behavior, identity, you know, physical effects or whatever. And Scientists are also contending with this mythology and framing around testosterone as being only connected to masculinity and only relevant for men's health, well-being, and bodies. And that's just not true. Before we talk about what testosterone doesn't do, what do we know for sure testosterone does? Lots of things. So testosterone participates in the formation of healthy bones in the development of muscle tissue and the maintenance of muscle in cognitive processes, in sexual function. It participates in the early sexual differentiation when you know, a fetus is developing sex initially. Also in processes and, and those sexual processes, for example, not just men's or masculine processes, but it turns out one of the fun facts that we talk about in the book is uh, testosterone is involved in ovulation, in bringing eggs to maturity before they're released. So there's a lot to it. Let's talk about the context of testosterone. In your book, you talk at length about how testosterone really does contain and is multitudes. Talk about where T lives in the body and when studies of yesteryear have tried to measure it, what challenges they were up against in terms of where in the body to locate it and at what time of day to go get it and under what circumstances. The interesting thing is that it's everywhere in the body and it affects all organs. It's circulating through the blood. Part of why we call it a multiplicity is that you can assess it and look at it through various media so that it could be urine, it could be blood, it could be saliva, and that it's not easy to actually make comparisons through those different media, but that there's also not just one version of testosterone. And so that you have to make a specific exam, uh, uh, specification rather, that is it circulating? Is it free? Um, is it total testosterone? And how do we sort of think about with specificity something that very generally is just called T? And when you hear the word testosterone, there's sort of a series of assumptions that might come around what you're referring to. And therefore, those findings can get generalized very broadly when what you're really only able to say is sort of this hormone functions in this way under these circumstances. And it's not the entire hormone, it's this specific version of it, if you will. The idea that testosterone is just this property of masculinity and maleness and that it also is a predictor of a variety of traits that somebody might have is attached to this misconception of testosterone as a stable trait that individual people have. In fact, testosterone fluctuates a whole lot over the course of a given day, over the course of seasons, over the lifetime. I mean, it's, I think, pretty well understood that testosterone rises during adolescence and is high in young adulthood and then changes over time, declines over age. 
But what's not actually well recognized is that that kind of pattern is not universal across the world. And that the extent to which young men have much higher testosterone than older men is a particularly Western phenomenon, apparently. There are different kinds of societies and parts of the world where you don't see the same level or exact pattern and shape of the difference across the life course. So that's a really cool fact. Well, let's talk about aggression. You've written that the notion that testosterone drives violent crime is like a zombie, a fact that seemingly can't be killed with new research or even new models that would make old research irrelevant or subject to new interpretations. Where did this theory that testosterone, high testosterone levels drives violent crime, where did that theory come from? And what did you find out? The idea itself actually predates any knowledge of the hormone itself. So the idea that testosterone causes aggression simply came from an association between aggression and men. And then second association between maleness or masculinity and this essence, some kind of chemical essence that then was over time isolated and described and named testosterone. So that idea out there of aggression as a fundamental property of men and maleness is what already anchored that expectation in the research before testosterone even was defined. So studies were set up basically to understand precisely how that worked and think about what that means, not to see what does testosterone do, but to ask the question, well, how is it that testosterone makes males more aggressive? The Mulder effect, I want to believe. Exactly. So I want to believe. This is what is true. Let me see what I can find out about how to link those things. Now, as a, as a scientist, I can tell you that's not the way you set up a research question. It's a very closed and biased way to set it up from the first place. But when everybody shares that assumption so strongly, it's hard to spot the bias. And so there are many, many, many scientists working within a framework that very often already predetermined the conclusions. And, you know, the, the kinds of challenges that got posed to that work have taken a very long time. So, for example, some of the early studies that we look at in detail have to do with the idea of aggression and violent crime. Some researchers studied prisoners in a variety of different settings. And from a distance of decades, it's very easy for us to look at those studies and say, well, actually, you see that they had to change their hypothesis like four or five times before they could ever actually attach testosterone to any aspect of aggression. But if you look at, for example, did the men in these studies show any of the traits that they predicted in the first place, the answer is no. And that they had to stretch so far away from the initial hypothesis that the kinds of things that got attached to aggression are things that I think a lot of people would really not even want to classify as aggressive. Things like escaping from a juvenile detention center or attempting to escape. That hardly meets the threshold of aggression, I think. Another really interesting thing about those studies is 
the way they were reported, especially in the popular press, but even now, when people keep picking up those citations, the way the studies are reported make it look like there's high aggression and high testosterone happening in the same time frame in a way where you could create, you know, you, you might say there's a causal relation. But in fact, what we saw in, in some of those studies is they're measuring testosterone today and they're having to reach back decades to try to find any kinds of indications that somebody was aggressive at some other point. But if you think testosterone is stable and is like a trait that somebody has, that might make some sense. But if you understand that testosterone is really dynamic, then you absolutely can't do a study like that. So that's just a view of the ways that the concrete evidence doesn't match up. It's sort of like what it says in your book. It's not a scientific link. It's a narrative one. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the double-blind, placebo-controlled studies in which neither the investigator nor participants know who's getting tea versus an inert substance. What happened? Well, in all of the truly double-blind, large studies that have tested placebo against testosterone, there are absolutely no effects at all on mood and behavior in anything related to aggression or violence. There's no greater anger or violent behavior reported by either men themselves or in at least one large well-designed study, even the partners of men were also given questionnaires as men uh, were given increasing doses of testosterone over time. One of the things that's interesting is these are studies that were primarily designed in a clinical domain to understand what was the effect of testosterone on specific kinds of strength, for example, also to look at safety. They were trying to understand both sort of the ranges of use for testosterone replacement and also to understand better what might be the effects of the underground or black market use of testosterone among men for weightlifting and sports and so on. It's just really interesting because in these studies, I think the investigators were expecting to find some results because you see some of them talking about that expectation in other domains. The big studies that have real life measures of of men's mood and their actual behavior and the assessment of people around them find no effect at all of testosterone, even in really, really high doses, the kinds of doses that are three and four times as high as what anybody would get to supplement, you know, clinically low testosterone. I gathered from your book that it's as important to seek answers to questions about what testosterone has to do with how humans operate as it is to shout far and wide about how very, very misguided and often flat out wrong some of the research and reporting is on this. I mean, research and reporting are to this day influencing how we interpret the way we behave and how we expect ourselves to behave. So in that way, this incorrect and often misinformed research and reporting, these zombie facts, as you put it, are acting as their own kind of chemical agents within us that at times it's not testosterone making us aggressive, it's our incorrect belief that testosterone makes us aggressive is what's making us aggressive. Exactly. I mean, there were a couple of you know examples that we gave in the book where on the policy level, people were using this idea about testosterone and aggression to normalize, for example, sexual violence. This uh, 
it came up in Congress, uh, Saxby Chambliss, they were talking about how to deal with the problem of sexual violence in the military. And he said, well, you know, nature has this difference. Or, you know, I don't remember his exact words, but basically pointing to testosterone saying, we shouldn't even bother trying to have a policy about this. And in other circumstances, mythology about certain kinds of men having high levels of aggression are used to justify doing real harms to them, leaving in place or creating new structural barriers to participation so that Wilders in the Netherlands, in the middle of this anti-immigrant frenzy, talked about Islamic men as testosterone bombs. So he talked about, I think it was Middle Eastern immigrants as Islamic testosterone bombs. That was his language. Those are just a couple of examples of how this mythology does real harms in very concrete circumstances. Well, Rebecca Jordan-Young and Katrina Carcasis, authors of Testosterone, an unauthorized biography. I'm not sure which combination of the myriad of different hormones coursing through my body is making me say this, but thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. After the break. There's a thousand page book called The Spiders of Connecticut, and the recluse is not one of them. The next time you see a brown spider in Connecticut, you'll find out why you can breathe well, easier. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The final segment of our show, Eviscerating Common Myths, is about a small, well-known, yet unfairly maligned spider, the brown recluse. Even the name makes the hairs stand up on my arms a little bit, and that's because all I've ever heard about this spider is that it's everywhere, even here in Connecticut, and that it's dangerous. Allow Rick Vetter to correct you. Rick is a retired professor from the Department of Entomology at the University of California in Riverside, and he literally wrote the book on brown recluse spiders. It's called The Brown Recluse Spider, and have no fear, or have as much fear as you like, it's illustrated. And this isn't actually the first time we talked. I contacted him back when I was working on my show featuring people who'd been attacked by wild animals. There was this woman in Tennessee who was bit not once but twice by a brown recluse, and I wanted some background information on the spider, so I called up Rick. We talked for 45 minutes, and as soon as I hung up, I'd wish I'd been able to record it. So now we have. And this is what it sounded like when we connected on Zoom. Hey, Professor Vetter. I see in the background you have a flag with a spider on it. It says, don't tread on me. Now, before we get started, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Is it... Is it recluse? Brown recluse? I think it's both. Let's start with the myth. What do people say about this spider? There's several facets to this. Is that one is that they believe the brown recluse is all over North America. 
And this is based on a lot of times on the misidentification of a harmless brown spider as a brown recluse. And in the 1960s, basically the doctors were diagnosing brown recluse bites with no knowledge of where the spider was found. Now, the other situation is that there was articles in like popular home magazines, I'm not going to name them, but they talk about the this horrible bite that this person received, or the media just loves to tell uh, brown recluse stories. It's, it's sort of like a case of men biting dog. How much of it is, do you think, it's kind of a cool name? Like, I mean, before we uh, talked today, I went into Spotify because every time I do a segment on my show, I choose the music that we use going out of it. And I, th- I thought, well, let me see if there are any significant amount of songs with Brown Recluse in the title. And sure enough, there are over 30 songs and 11 albums with Brown Recluse in the title. Uh, so what, to what degree do you think it's just it's a cool name and then it just sticks? Well, again, it's one of those things where just like within the media, they're trying to sell news. So you think for this show, I should probably title it, you know, play this show or else you'll get bit by Brown Recluse or something. It's that name is powerful. Well, I, I, I thought what would help me in my retirement is to do an eighth book of Harry Potter and the Brown Recluse. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to spend all that money, Rick. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, all right, where in the world should people reasonably expect to find a brown recluse spider? It's a North American spider found from southeastern Nebraska down through Texas to northwestern Georgia to southwestern Ohio. That's where the brown recluse, Luxosceles recluse, lives. Now, this is me speaking as somebody who's very committed to the idea that I may encounter a brown recluse in places where brown recluses don't exist. Your favorite person. What are the odds a brown recluse could hop an Amtrak and head up to like a nice bungalow outside of Seattle and begin propagating outside that area? Okay, this is exactly what the medical people continually cite. It's like, well, I diagnosed it as a skin lesion. There was no spider found, but it could have gotten transferred by a train or a plane. Well, where's the spider? Show me the spider. Show me the spider. Now, also, think about this. Dust Bowl era, 1930s, how many thousands of people moved from Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas to California? Recluses like cardboard boxes. How many thousands of brown recluses did they bring with them? Probably thousands. How many populations have established in California? None. Show me the spider. You got it. Now, it can't happen. I mean, there are isolated cases but it does not happen hundreds of times to justify the diagnoses that physicians are making in every state every year. Is there a time of year that brown recluse spiders within the place where they live are most active? Yeah, basically it's the summer from, or around April they start coming out. Even in heated houses where they could be walking around, usually the recluse season inside of a house is April through about October. So let's go to the real-life situation where I might encounter it. Let's say I'm visiting Kansas in June, and I think I saw one. What would be the circumstance in which I really would see one in Kansas in June? Okay, well, I did a paper with an incredibly intelligent woman in Kansas. She has a house that was built in the 1850s. It's 18-inch limestone walls with lots of cracks and crevices. 
she wanted to do a study and because she's been finding all these spiders in her house that were identified as brown recluses. And I told her to collect all the spiders that she can, you know, kill them, I don't care how, sticky traps. In six months, she found 2,055 brown recluse spiders in her house. Now about 400 of these were large enough that they probably could inflict a bite. Now, how often did she get bit? It took 11 years of them living in that house before somebody got nailed and turned red and went away in a couple of days, which is typical for a recluse bite. But I actually stayed with her for a couple of days when I was taking pictures from my book. She said, there'll be one coming out from the windowsill over here tonight. There'll be another one up here. That's Billy. That's David. Shauna. Right. You got them. You know, there'll be one by the base of the stairs. So we haven't seen any in your room for, that you'll be sleeping in for a while. Put out sticky traps just in case, but we didn't catch anything in the last week or two. But Rick, it sounds like even if there were a ton of brown recluse spiders and you were sleeping in that room, you wouldn't be quaking in your night slippers. Right. You are so sick and tired of people being so sure they've been bitten by brown recluse that you've invented an acronym for doctors to use when someone goes to the ER saying that they got bit by a spider. And that acronym spells... Not recluse. All right, walk us through it. N stands for numerous. Most spider bites, including recluse bites, are singular lesions. More than one lesion, probably not a recluse bite. O is occurrence. People get bit in bed or they leave their clothes out on the floor and spiders crawl into the clothes and they, they squish them or press them when they get dressed. T, T is for timing April through October in the Northern Hemisphere. R stands for red. Most recluse bites are purple, blue, or white. So if it's a red wound, then it's most likely not a recluse bite. E, elevated. Recluse bites are sunken or flat. People contact me and say, oh, I got bit by a recluse and it raised up the size of a baseball. That's not a recluse bite. It's going to be sunken or flat. C is chronic. Even the worst recluse bites usually heal within two to three months. L is large. Most recluse bites don't get any bigger than four inches in diameter. U, ulcerated early. Recluse bites don't usually ulcerate until seven to 14 days. S, swollen. Recluse bites do not swell from the neck down to the ankles. Now, if you get bit on the eyelid or the cheek, you may swell, the face may swell up so badly, you may, your breathing may be compromised. Would that be applicable to any spider bite on the face? No, it's just recluse. And again, from the ankles on down, uh, feet will swell. And E is probably the most important one, exudative, meaning producing pus, blood, or serum. Recluse bites are dry. Again, you've destroyed the capillary bed. Serum can't get in. The blood can't get in. It turns out to be a dry wound. So if you've got pus coming out of a wound, that's a bacterial infection. So how did I do, coach? (laughs) Swing and a hit. (laughs) That paper got got a lot of... uh, very nice comments, and I think has become a classic in a very short time. You also have gotten so tired of the misidentification that you started the Brown Recluse Challenge. Will you tell me about it? You got it. Okay, if you think you've got a brown recluse, you send to me and I'll identify it. I did not want spiders that people knew were recluses, like county agents, stuff like that, people who were experienced. I wanted people who were not sure that they had recluses. In a very short time, I realized that the only thing that required a spider to have to be considered a brown recluse was eight legs and be brown. 
I received basically every single uh, medium to large size spider that you find in a home in North America. Some of them weren't, weren't even spiders. They were daddy long legs and called sulpugids. So what I'm curious about underneath all this is how does it feel to be you? Knowing that so many people are wrong about this so much of the time. And here you are trying to educate people and say, actually, no, it's probably not actually like, do you go kind of crazy? And does it also feel kind of good? Cause you're right pretty much all the time. Like it's, it's how do, how do you feel? But the thing is I started chipping away. I had like a seven to 10 year plan. And just started chipping away at one one little block at a time, and well, I've had two physicians tell me I have changed the way the doctors diagnose skin lesions as spider bites, and I did it in my own lifetime. I didn't have to die first to have it happen. And now, do you feel like you could die happy after being bit by a brown reckless? Wait, is there venom possibly fatal? Well, you can. They they are occasionally fatal. All right. How how often does that happen? Very, very rarely. It's usually small kids and they get hemolytic anemia, which usually can be um, counteracted with, with dialysis and drugs and stuff like that. But, I mean, it's one of the things that people say, oh, you're defending the spider. No, they are potentially dangerous, but they're not as bad as other things that happen. Actually, one time there was a journalist who was doing an article and you could tell he had, he had it already written up and he just wanted to get quotes. And it's like, well, spider season's coming up. What, what kind of spider's gonna bite us? Well, Black Widow can, well, how do we avoid it? And finally, I had a bunch of these, how do we avoid it? I said, okay, here's what you need to do if you want to tell your audience what they need to know in order to increase their health. Drive slower, wear a seatbelt, stop eating fast food, stop smoking, and get some exercise. And now you can add to that, wear a freaking mask. And masks will probably protect you from spider bites to the face. Well, usually most bites are on the, on the torso and in the arms and legs. All right. I'm going to have one last ditch effort for the person living in the Northeast of the United States who really clings to the idea that they could encounter a brown recluse. So... With climate change already changing the way that we live, is it possible that their area may move up north? I mean, what if in 10, 30, 50 years, we, if we humans haven't caused our own demise, I'm on my hoverboard in my house in Hartford, Connecticut, sipping my Soylent Green, and I see a spider that's brown, and I go, that's a brown recluse. What are the odds I'll be right sometime in the future? A hair's breadth away from zero. Okay, there's a study that was done looking at what brown, where brown recluses currently live and projecting that to where the changes will be in the northern areas. But that's only climate. You cannot factor in brown recluse behavior into this model. Brown recluses get into a building and they stay there. Garage is full of spiders, a detached garage full of brown recluses. A house 25 feet away, no brown recluses. They are reclusive. I think historically, well, evolutionarily, they are cave spiders. They don't, they don't disperse. Now, some spiders, things like black widows, little baby black widows, when, when there's air currents with updrafts, they climb onto a high point area, stick their butts in the air, release silk, and then they get carried away like aerial plankton. 
Now, most of them only go a couple of feet, but they found them, they found spiders at 10,000 feet on the airplane collecting device. They found them 200 miles off uh, land and landing on boats. This is how some spiders can colonize an area. Search for ballooning events with spiders. You'll see the millions of them sometimes will take off these little itsy bitsy spiders and they will cover fences like sheets. Recluses do not balloon. They do not, they do not migrate, they do not move around. They typically get into a building and they don't go very far from there. As far as climate change is gonna happen, what's, what probably happen is that the spiders at the southern portion of their range will burn up and die and then the range will decrease. That's comforting to me here in Hartford. Not that they're even necessarily anything to fear. See, I'm so preloaded with the idea that brown recluse equals like this huge threat that it's not, that when you say that they would burn up in climate change and, and in the sun, that that brings me great relief, which is probably totally uncalled for. <laughs> yeah, well, people freak out with the, the, the recluse situation. Are there any spiders here in Connecticut that you know of that we should fear? You might have uh, some widow spiders up there, but instead of being around homes and things like that, it makes its webs in, in trees and bushes. And it's not that common of a spider. There's a, a thousand page book called The Spiders of Connecticut. Connecticut is 60 by 90 miles and you've got a thousand page book, 2,500 illustrations of spiders just found in Connecticut and the recluse is not one of them. The only thing is you have to maybe you'd be lucky to find a northern black widow. So stay out of the bushes and trees. You'll be all right. Wear a mask. You'll do much better. Well, Professor Rick Vetter, thank you so much for talking with me today. Sure thing. So congratulations. The next time someone says testosterone causes aggression, or pain is 100% not manageable without medication, or that they totally saw a brown recluse in Bark Hampstead. You can say, actually. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like antinatalism, speech disfluencies, being an intimacy coordinator for film and TV, or the intersection of sobriety and social justice, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>